Hey everyone, this is Alan Schimmel, and welcome to another episode of CISO Talk. Let me introduce you to our panel today. First of all, I want to introduce my co-host, Matt Newfield. Matthew is the CISO at Unisys. Matt, welcome. It's always a pleasure to be here, Alan. Always a pleasure to have you here, Matt. Uh, joining Matt and I is our is our, is the third stooge of the of the three stooges here with us. My uh, co-host, Mitchell Ashley, CEO, co-founder at Accelerated Strategies Shemp, Group. I guess. Okay, that makes you Shemp or Curly. Well, curly. not really. I think I'm more Curly, but whatever. <laughs> um, Mitchell, welcome. And then our two panel guests for today. Uh, one is a returning guest here on CISO Talk, Miranda Ritchie of IBM. Miranda, welcome. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me again. My pleasure. Miranda, for those in the audience who may not be familiar, you want to just go over kind of your role and so sure. forth, background? Sure. So I met Matt at uh, during our time at IBM. So I'm still at IBM. I'm in the managed security services world, and I run our managed detection and response in Threat Hunt. Fantastic. And then last but not least is one of, actually Mitchell and I, one of our friends, I was going to say old friends, but friends that we know a long time from the oh. security world. Probably we're we're old now too. Yeah. Uh, Mike Murray. Hey, Mike, welcome. You want to give everyone a little background? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's really great to be be here and, you know, with the two the two stooges I've known for a long time and the third <laughs> stooge who I just met. Great. Right. Um, so a bit about me. I, I'm not a CISO anymore. I used to be a CISO. Last job that I had was as the CISO of a company called Lookout, which uh, if you know mobile security, you know Lookout. Um, but uh, about a year and a half ago, started a company called Scope Security that is focused on healthcare cybersecurity and, and specifically managed detection and response in healthcare. And, uh, and so great to be, be here, you know, and talking with you all about that same topic. Absolutely. And of course, before that, Mike, I mean, you've been in, we didn't mm. call it cyber, you've been in InfoSec 20, 25 years. Yeah, I've been here a literally. long time. So I, I literally am old. So yeah, yeah. you can, you can you call know, me that. It's when you get old, <laughs> you don't want to call people old. You don't mind calling young people old, they laugh. Well, <laughs> old people old, they get upset. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> so guys, for the, our last two episodes, we've really kind of been focusing in on the healthcare vertical and the challenges around cybersecurity in the, in the healthcare vertical. You know, we've looked at you know, the, the recent ransomware. So ransomware has been a, a problem now for some time, but certainly recently it, it's become acute. Um, we've looked at healthcare in general. In this third episode, we wanted to kind of put the cherry on top of our look deep dive into healthcare and, um, and the challenges and, you know, unique challenges from a security perspective that opposes what we're seeing, what we think may be coming down the pike. Matt, I was going to ask you to kick, kick off our conversation today, if it's okay. Absolutely, Alan. So first, thank you all for coming today, and thank you for joining us if you're watching this episode. You know, we have, just being timely, we've really watched a growth in the attack on our healthcare systems. And in the age of COVID, it's very interesting, if not disturbing, for many of us in cybersecurity because... At the beginning of the year, you heard so many of these adversary groups talk about the fact that they were going to spare healthcare. They were going to spare research because they have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and friends as well that could be negatively impacted. 
And a lot of that seemed to go by the wayside. So that, that sparing of these organizations has really ended. And we've seen a massive growth and attacks on healthcare organizations that really came to almost a head at the end of October. Mike, I know you had done some articles even uh, you know, just a few weeks ago on this. And really one of the questions that I wanted to explore today is, it's not so much why are they attacking, we all know, right? I mean, the, the almighty dollar is, is a, it's a heavy driver, but to flip it around and what can we in industry whether you're in cyber or you're in IT or you're in facilities, what can we be talking about to help these organizations, to help healthcare, to help research, um, either from a government perspective, and we can be US centric, or from manufacturing operating system perspective, you know, where we can go. And Mike, I'd love to start with you. You were, right before we, we jumped into this, you were bringing up your passion behind a few of these topics and wanted to get your thoughts on this. Off. Yeah, and and actually, I'm going to go a slightly different direction than what we were talking about just before, because I think there's some context that people need to understand when they think about a healthcare organization that most of us take for granted. We, when we think about hospitals, we don't really think a lot about the challenges they have technologically, and I think that there's something that we've been talking with our customers about a lot lately, and it's that healthcare is not one environment; it's three, and and until you understand that there are three environments all playing blended together, it's really hard to even conceive of why healthcare organizations have such a hard time. The, the first environment is the one we all know about. It's the IT environment, right? Healthcare has laptops and desktops and switches and routers and all the same stuff that you would expect to find at any financial services firm or you name the company. Then the second environment they have looks like the OT environments that you hear folks in our industry like Clarity and Dragos talk about, and that's their clinical technology or biomedical environment, right? It's, and Matt, you just sort of, in, sort of, uh, kind of in, intuited some of the challenges of this space, right? Vendors that, vendors that generally aren't software companies that are selling software, um, you know, long patch cycles, old operating systems. There's not a hospital in the United States that doesn't have Windows XP, and I would bet 90% of them have Windows 98 somewhere. And, and then you have the FDA's participation in the regulatory piece. And then you have a third environment. This is the one that we very rarely talk about, which is the EHR environment. And most of us think, you know, if, if you have peripheral exposure to healthcare, you think of the EHR as basically a database of patient records. But that's not what it is anymore. The EHR is effectively the modern operating system of a hospital. And so all of those IT devices and all of those OT devices are connected together through this third environment that orchestrates and implements the whole the whole thing now the challenge that these folks have is if you think about the technology environment right and and both uh, both of us here on the panel are are in the sort of detection and response side we have great detection and response tools in it right you, you know edr and a lot of the stuff that's evolved over the last five years there's some really great stuff there there's starting to be tools about clinical technology, right? You've got these IoT folks, the Zing boxes, the orders, Medigate, CyberMDX. Like I could mention probably 10 or 12 of them that are trying to be effectively a firewall for those medical devices and that OT stuff, right? And there's almost no tooling from the security perspective for the EHR environment. And there's certainly nothing that stitches it all together where you can see an attack as it pivots. You know, attacker fishes a laptop, pivots in, uses a, an MRI machine running an old version of Windows with MS-8067 open, you know, sitting there wide open. 
and then they jump on that box and use that to scan the environment and break in and steal a bunch of patient records out of the EMR. The CISO doesn't have visibility into hardly any of that. And so how do you ever, if you're a tech, you know, if you're a healthcare organization, secure yourself when all of your tools are in only a third of your environment? And I, I think that that framing by itself, before you even get to a lot of the other challenges, makes it so hard for these folks that how can we ever think they're going to succeed until we give them, you know, products and services and tools across all three of those environments, not just in one. But isn't it also a problem? You, you, we can talk about how you only see a particular part of the environment, but even if you gave them the tools, the techniques, um, the, the infrastructure and the know-how, it, it does always come back down to budget. And yeah. in a hospital, you know, you know, we talked about this a few episodes ago. Their number one priority is a patient's life. Of course. Not, I hope so. Uh, you hope, right? But not patched management. It, and it, it's changing that conversation because I would imagine that as a CISO, an IT security or an IT person, if you're sitting in one of these groups and they're talking about, I need a new you know, health, uh, health monitoring system or a new drug distribution system, and you go, well, I need that money to do better patch management on our laptops. You know, it's like, yeah, which one's going to win? So Miranda, what are you starting to see? So, so we talk about this in October, these, this influx of attacks as you all are doing your research and really watching that, you know, as Mike put it, the MDR, EDR space, you're, you're watching that threat. What are you seeing out in the market right now? Yeah, and I think, I think uh, Mike, you hit on a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it that way in terms of segregation. And I think to some extent, you know, even what's going on, um, like, for, for example, at the end of October with the U.S. government putting out all kinds of warnings to, you know, some 400 different healthcare facilities, um, everybody's focused on that IT environment. The guidance that came out from DHS and from the FBI was fairly vague in terms of just, you know, patching to, to your point, Matt. Um, but in the meantime, that doesn't stop the threat actors, right? So we're seeing not just ransomware, but we're also seeing kind of this extortion as a service, right? So we're gonna take your patient data and we might not necessarily be doing anything with it other than selling it or holding it hostage. Um, and really the ransoms for that kind of thing are going way up. Um, we're seeing, you know, an increase from $1,200 or so per attack to, you know, one in 2020 that was over, 40 million. Yeah. And it's interesting it, it, not to get into a religious conversation here on whether you should pay, but there's also been some interesting guidance on, you know, does paying help? If I've got your data and I promise to delete your data, delete those medical records, does paying actually do anything? And, and Mitch, you and I were talking about this in one of the previous episodes. It, it might be a, a bit of a switch here, but would fun to talk about, you know, should a hospital even pay? Does that preclude you from notification? Does it preclude you from doing things that you need to do? And before you answer, I'll, I'll throw out, you're right, they came out with guidance for patching, but as Mike so eloquently put it, I don't know how you patch a Windows 98 or a Windows NT environment to stop an exploit, especially if the guides that were written to exploit those were written in 99. So they're, they're really old almost as old as we are. I think one of the things that you have that's also sort of layered on, layered on top of this, I've worked in research for environments where you don't get in the way of research, right? Professors need to publish that sort of sacrosanct. And here it's do no harm, right? So are you doing harm by getting in the way and turning something off or taking it off the network until it's patched or whatever and potentially impacting someone's life or 
losing a life because of it, because you're trying to protect a device versus, you know, there's also the, the integrity of the data. I think Mike, in your point about those, those systems in the electronic medical records, someone can just as maliciously change that information or do something with it to manipulate it. Now you're talking about impacting lives again there. So you have this whole other ethical human element of yes, people might lose money. That's one thing we're talking about losing lives. That's a whole nother ball game. Yeah. And some of those uh, life losses may not be seen until the future, right? They don't have to be immediate. If you're prescribed the wrong drug, the wrong dosage of drug, mm -hmm. You know, one of the controversial things that tends to come up when I'm speaking to hospitals and, and I'd be curious on everybody's thought of this is you always hear, how do you stop ransomware? And, and the answer really is through things like education, don't click on links, you know, and you could go down that path. But one of the ones that comes up all the time is MFA, right? Multi-factor authentication. Give everybody a token, give everybody some sort of an MFA with your mobile device or, or whatever. But there seems to be a lot of pushback in healthcare. I'd love, Mike, you, guys, you just rubbed your eye, so I'm going to give it to you, Mike, your thoughts on this? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because, so prior life, I, uh, I ended up at GE Healthcare where I ran a team that was responsible for all the products and services that healthcare put out um, before they hit the market. And I will never forget one of the very first conversations that I had um, about why we didn't have password standards for our medical devices. And I, you know, as a security person, I'm looking at these people like, what kind of backwater have I just stumbled into, right? And and until some somebody with more gray hair than me pulled me aside and, and sort of patted me on the head and basically said, look, security guy, like, uh, I appreciate your desire for all these passwords and things. But when patients are bleeding, you don't really want to wait for the doctor to remember their password. And so maybe there's a better solution. And so, so the pushback we get in healthcare often, and this was, this was the eye-opening thing, like uh, me starting a healthcare security company many years later comes directly from the education I got when I went into taking over medical devices. A lot of the things that are orthodoxy for us are not even make, they don't even make sense in a healthcare context. So as an example, when I went to GE in 2014 and this changed, but when I got there, we printed the root passwords of all of our devices in the manual and they were hard coded. These devices go through an FDA risk assessment and that was deemed not a risk according to the risk assessment. And I'm just gonna wait for, <laughs> Matt, Matt's head just exploded, right? And the reason for that is that what risk is in the context of a medical device, and according to the FDA, what risk is, is the risk that a trained user using the equipment in a trained way will fail to get the medical outcomes with some probability. Thus, printing the root password in the manual, when the manual should only be read by a trained user using the machine in the trained and appropriate context, can't possibly be a risk. And when you realize that their version of risk and our version of risk are so diametrically different, you start to understand why we have such a hard time having this conversation. Miranda, any thoughts on that? Wow. I mean, that's eye-opening for sure. Um, it, you know, it, and in my world too, I'm sure as in yours as well, we see all kinds of maturity levels, right? And some some clients, even if they're in healthcare, they may have a pretty robust staff and, and security team and, and understand that. Some of them may not even know, 
right? The, they may have no no clue that that's that that's you know a risk or a problem in the in the cyberspace. Yeah, the just a statistic to back you up there, Miranda. The HHS study that came out a couple of years ago that found that eighty five percent of healthcare organizations in the United States don't have even one security person on staff. Right. I believe it because we see we see that too, right? We see it where it's one person and they're wearing multiple hats, you know, and and this is just a fraction of their time, right? You there's that piece of it, Mike, but I think when we talk about healthcare, we still have to remember that the 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 doctors, the physicians, are the king of all they see, right? I forgot what movie was it, but it was Alex um, Baldwin. Alex Baldwin, right? And he says, I am God, right? Or as close as you'll, when you're in that surgery room, I am God, and as close as you'll ever get to it. You know, I'm reminded, I think it was Mitchell and I went to, we were selling NAC, and we tried to go to some mid sized, you know, health network. I forgot what, it might have been in Missouri or somewhere. Mitchell and I were on the road. And, and, um, and the, the CIO of the healthcare organization said, look, doctors can use whatever they want. We're not going to tell them what to patch or what patchworks they should have because we're lucky to have them here. Because without them, we don't have a hospital. And that, you know, that's, so you want to talk about different standards of risk or, or how you look at stuff. If you have an omnipotent diet deity security doesn't apply to them especially and, the choice right i mean they can leave your hospital they if you've got a, a star brain surgeon a star any surgeon and you make it difficult for them and they go you know what i'm going to go over to that other hospital all the money for the surgeries they do go with them to that other hospital including yeah. their i mean but but it's not that you know i remember back early on in the security world days where you would talk to a security person and you'd be like, uh, well, you know, why aren't you monitoring or closing off that CEO's email stream? There's a big, a lot of problem there. And they were like, you know, well, yeah, we know the CEO likes to watch porn. And then it's a potential, a potential, you know, problem into the organization. But do you want to tell them? And, you know, it's that, it's that same issue that the, I, I call it the human factors of cybersecurity that, you know, real politics, real lives. Not all people are created equal. And that's certainly true in the healthcare space. So combine that with a kind of warped sense of what risk is. And as you know, and as Mike says, we have these three layer cake of of technology that needs to be secured, each one kind of semi-dependent on the one below it or above it. Is it a wonder? Is it a wonder that, you know, it is the mess that it is? Well, no. And let's be honest, before we even go into that, you, you, you realize that this isn't new, right? This has been around for years. We're talking about operating systems like Windows NT and Windows 98. It's been around forever. The proliferation of, we'll just call it bad within these environments has skyrocketed and I think become central in our psyches and the news because of COVID. It's the year of 2020 and COVID. So it's really come out. And the cost of being able to sell off medical records has changed drastically over the last couple of years. And it's a profitable business uh, for people. So, you know, again, we could talk for hours about all the bad things. So 
So you talk about we can't add passwords. You talk about not being able to add MFA. We talk about not being able to patch systems. You talk about not putting any gates in front of a doctor or nurse's ability to save a life of a, you know, an EMT's ability to pull up information while they are speeding down the road, bringing a patient to a hospital. The adversaries know it. They're exploiting it. They're becoming wealthy on it, potentially at a loss of life. So now what? So we have to turn the story. We can't just FUD it for the next 10 years, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But so so what do we do? I mean, and I think that's the big question. What do we I mean, in industry do? Let me just add one other thing to that, though, Matthew, and that is that this is a world where, well, the world in general, but specifically in healthcare, where technology becomes more and more of a of a distinguishing distinguishing factor between success and failure, right? This is, I mean, modern medicine is all about tech. And, and so we, yeah, I mean, we can't afford to just ignore it. And Mike, I mean, I thought that's why you started Scope Security, oh. quite frankly. I was going to say that's my, my answer to Matt's question is, right. and, and, we're one company, right? Like, I, I don't think that we're the answer. I'm, I'm just, you know, trying to be one of the, one of the ones that are raising the tide. But I think the, the, the one thing that I've been saying since my GE days is, is we build all the stuff in, in our whole industry. We build it for financial services and government. And if anybody else can use it, that's great. But, but like, I, we've all been on the inside of vendors, right? And, and that's how we make those decisions. We got to start thinking about hospitals as their own thing, and we've got to build tools and technology for them that doesn't look like a bank that that understands that the CISO doesn't have the same power to say no that they have in financial services, like or a tech company like when I was at Lookout, like that understands that this technology is going to be around forever. Like if, a, if you buy a CT scanner today, you expect it to be in use twenty years from now because you just spent like you know, five, six million dollars on this device, you can't go replace it three years from now. So if we know that's going to be the case, well, let's figure out how to solve the problem. Not saying, hey, you know, the vendors have just got to be able to make that machine so that it still works in 20 years on Windows 2040 or whatever it is. But if we're deploying it on Windows 10 with the current build, how do we make that still secure and secureable 20 years from now? Like these are conversations we need to have and we need to stop making the financial services firms our main driver for our industry and realize that that if we're going to build things for healthcare, we got to go build things for healthcare. Right? Now, if I can put a shout out in for that Mike. Um there's an organization that I'm familiar with, did a little bit of work with called for the the Center for Medical Interoperability. And they're based in Nashville, actually some one of the CTO is ex cable labs guy that I used to work with in the cable. What I didn't know about the healthcare industry in addition to observing these things we're talking about is the vendors are very vertically integrated. If you're a Phillips hospital, you tend to have all Phillips, you know, scanner CTs, whatever's. And it's because their products are so tightly integrated. They don't have standards for interoperability across multiple vendors. You can't say, I want to switch out that with another one. Well, no, you've got an entire ecosystem built around that vendor. And the center for medical interoperability is trying to work with 
the consumers, the hospital organizations that have kind of banded together to aggregate their buying power with to work with the vendor community to get them to open up a little bit more, along with the medical records, which is a whole nother sort of lock-in uh, part of the industry. So I, some, I think that's something that we don't necessarily appreciate not being in healthcare. And again, I have just a little bit of exposure here. I'm certainly not a healthcare expert, but that also brings that challenge. It's not just getting the, hey, you know, that Windows machine is not a computer. It's an MRI machine. Well, and and actually just, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to advocate a little bit for the detection and response folks over here. Right. One of the, there, there's been some really great work in the FDA around security standards for devices that come out and around the requirements for vulnerability patching, but especially from an interoperability perspective for detection and response, there are no FDA regulations that drive what you log. And so I, I, often, I often play around with the scenario of like, okay, who in the world knows what it looks like when an APT actor pops a given MRI machine? And the true answer is nobody. Um, because if you went to the product team that developed it, and I know this from my time at GE, they've never thought about that, so they have no idea what that looks like. There's no regulation that requires anyone to think about it. Um, there's none of the security community, you know, like other than us. Uh, I, I doubt anyone's going out and buying a bunch of MRIs and then breaking into them to see what happens to them, right? And so, so you end up with this world where the, the, even if we wanted to do better detection and response, even if we wanted to take you know, the logs from those devices, unless you're really committed to knowing the answer to that question, it's really hard to do. So we end up with, with our threat intelligence base all being in that IT environment that I talked about earlier and some network IOCs, but that's all you get because a lot of those interoperability challenges mean that it's impossible unless you're willing to put in the effort to even know what it looks like when those devices get hacked. And there's where your problem is, right? We, yeah. You're trying to overlay, but I'll, I'll make it even worse. And again, I, I desperately try not to go down the FUD route, but it's, it's just there. You, you know, you talk about a second ago that a lot of us, you know, Miranda, your teams, you, you have these specialties and you're, you're specialized in creating software programs and projects for these verticals and then trying to shove them in healthcare. And I think the reason is the finance vertical pays. Yeah. They have massive budgets around this because it's a known loss. And manufacturing pays because if that system that's been up and running 24 by seven, 365 with 72 nines behind the 99% um, cannot go down because they know the losses in dollars per second. It's you get to the healthcare and there's really, it's hard to find advocates. It's hard to find controls. And to your point, Mitch, you brought this up a second ago. What does a particular MRI look like when it's been breached? And unfortunately, the people you asked who knows, well, there is an answer. Unfortunately, it's the adversaries that know because they're the ones playing in it because they know that it's Greenfield, then nobody's paying attention. And Miranda, I don't want to call out you or your organization, but do you have specialty? Do you do do you see specialty of looking for, you know, certain hospital equipment in industry? I'm not talking about your organization or your team, but do you see people who threat hunt specifically in healthcare and understand that basis? I would imagine it's pretty small if you do. 
Right. No, we're not, we're not looking by industry. And I think, you know, Mike, you brought up a great point. Nobody's really an expert in you know, how, what does it look like when an APT pops an MRI machine specifically. But I think that's where the importance of like tactics, techniques, and procedures comes into play, mm-hmm. right? Because if you look at the pyramid of pain, those TTPs are really hard to change and it doesn't really matter what the end device is that they're, that they're targeting, right? With credential dumping is credential dumping no matter where it occurs. So I think the focus should be less on, you know, what's the IOC or what's the ransomware flavor of the week? That's always going to change. Um, and instead, look at the TTPs that are getting it there in the first place. So we, we talked a, a bit about some of the things that we can do in industry, but, you know, let's go back to the that MFA that, that you, uh, Mike, you started laughing about. But, you know, what are things, do you have recommendations that hospitals um, agencies that support hospitals, the FDA, those kinds of organizations, us in cyber could start talking about, start pushing, you know, when Alan, you're out talking to people, we can start pushing it and, and recommending that you get that same level of security or at least get close to the same level of security without interfering with their ability to save a life. I mean, I have I, I I have opinions on all of those across across all of those parts of the yeah. industry, but uh, maybe maybe we we'll just start with the with the hospitals themselves. And the reason that I that I always start out by framing all three environments is what you find when you talk to most folks is that they they understand part of the strategy, but they haven't thought through the strategy on the clinical side or on the on the EMR side. And just having the conversation about the full environment starts to spark you know, interesting ideas in people's heads. I mean, by the time you're a hospital CISO or, I mean, any any CISO, you've been around long enough that if, if you can generally reason through what the control environment should look like, what things I should be detecting, what things I should be looking for when you think about it. But for the most part, when I talk to folks at hospitals, they've, they've lived in this world of, I see my IT stuff, uh, I put my clinical stuff over there and I try not to uh, not to think about it. And the EMR is privacy and compliances realm and I don't even think about that. And until we're thinking about the environment as a whole, how can we possibly talk about securing the environment as a whole, right? Like you, you gotta, you know, I mean, the old saw, right? Is visibility, you know, risk visibility before risk management. We haven't even solved risk visibility in most of these places. So how can we ever think that they're gonna do good risk management? But if you can't get to a point, if we believe that you're really, and, and Alan, you brought this up so many times, we're boiling the ocean, where if you're not going to be able to boil that entire ocean, you're not going to be able to do in healthcare in any short period of time what you're talking about. I mean, you, you can't combine the three areas. You know, Miranda, you talked about it. You have to layer on some of the normal things that we see. So again, then what are some practical steps that we can take to help them out because going to a hospital group and saying you haven't been hit yet we think right you you haven't experienced ransomware yet spend x number of dollars to make sure it doesn't happen until they've been hit and they're on the news all of a sudden the dollars open up for a very short window though and if they don't have a CISO, a cyber expert, a partner, a vendor in to help them, generally, by the time they are ready to go, that window is closed and not spending the money anyway, which is why there are so few organizations, Mike, like you out there focused on this because 
you, you have to operate in very small windows. Actually, I'm not sure that I agree on uh, You're totally right the last five years. Uh, you know, if, if we rewind the clock to when I was at GE, I agree with you 100%. I don't see that today. I I talk to hospital CEOs and, and board members all the time. This is a board member conversation in, in healthcare today. And so the budget, the budget is there today. Um, the most interesting thing is most people have no idea how to spend it. I was talking to a, to a, uh, hospital CISO. This was last year. This was pre COVID. And, and he said to me, um, I, I just got budget approval to hire like 85 people. I said, congratulations, man. That's, that's awesome. He said, my closest hospital to a real city is about two hours east of San Diego. I have no idea how to find those people. And, and you know, it's not just budgets that are the problem, right? It's, it's. It, I mean, even the conversation about the environments and the tools, like what are you gonna go buy for your EMR environment that's going to help you right now? The answer isn't out there. And so even if you wanna spend the money, even, even if you gave most healthcare CISOs like dump trucks full of money, spending it in a way that actually leads to proper risk mitigation and proper outcomes it becomes its own level of challenge that that like none of us who've been you know financial services CISOs or tech company CISOs in San Francisco or New York City or Denver um, like we don't live with that problem we know how to hire people right we don't have to go like I, I always make the joke like you know it's, I live in New York City New York Presbyterian does not have that same talent challenge that some community hospital in Topeka Kansas has right and so it's not just as, as simple as saying money equals solution because there's a lot of other problems but and, and Alan this jumps to you really in the conversation we've been having about talent acquisition and finding good people I agree with you. You actually answered the, the perfectly. It's a board conversation. Getting the board on board, that, that has to be priority number one. These are all major entities. If the board's not on board with this need, then you're sort of done for. Finding talent's also very difficult because who wants to go, right? It, most people in cybersecurity know that it's a it's a up market. It's, you know, you get to write, a lot of people get to write their own checks depending on where they live. Um, and their expertise. And, you know, if you're in Topeka, Kansas and have your choice between a consultancy or a local hospital, I can promise you nobody's going to that local hospital unless they're independently wealthy and don't really need to work, right? And so it, it does make things difficult. But you know what? That's one of the reasons behind, like, Miranda, the managed service, you know, market that you're part of with IBM is that, yeah, I get it. We're not going to be able to staff out a sock two hours east of San Diego or Topeka or where have you. But I can hire IBM if I have budget, I can hire IBM. No one ever gets fired for hiring IBM, right? <laughs> to manage to manage my my intrusions, threats, my you know, a lot of my security. So why don't we see more of that? Well I think we do. I, I, I'm not going to speak for Miranda and IBM, but but every hospital that I talk to, all the way up to top five systems, are using someone to manage their 24 by 7 SOC. Absolutely. Right? I, it's it's why I call Scope a managed company. We we are a managed detection and response company, but we're mostly a software company. If I was building this, if I was building the same thing to sell to financial services, we would have just called ourselves, you know, XDR or SIM. 
Um, but because we know we're selling to hospitals that have to have a managed service, we have to be a managed service. And, and Miranda, I'm guessing that you guys see a lot of managed service customers in healthcare too, because they have to have it. It's not like, Alan, to your point, they all have one. What's really interesting is about half of them that I talk to, they have the local MSSP. You know, our, my, my, I don't see Scope's main competition as IBM, right? And, and I think we exist pretty well together. The folks that we end up competing with are the folks that are, you know, the regional in-market uh, VAR reseller, um, you know, we'll also sell you some laptops and we do this, right? And, and those folks are the ones that we end up talking, talking about a lot. Those, and those are the folks that I think most healthcare organizations have. And I agree. They're boutiques, right? They're the yeah. local. I happen to know someone. I trust someone. I'm going to use them. They were the cheapest I could get. They must find people. But Alan, you answered what I think the second thing that we we need to impart. It's to build relationships with vendors and partners and experts. Even if, Mike, I think you would agree with this. Even if you don't have the budget, finding a you or finding a Miranda because you all are out there, you, you put yourself on the market. I put myself out there through these kinds of efforts, through articles that we write, articles we're a part of. Even if you don't have budget today, building those relationships to get industry advice, Alan, I, I think that is absolutely something that needs to happen more. One of the things you hear Alan and Mitch and I talk about in every one of these segments is the fact that we're all on the same side. And, and Mike, you just said it. We're, we're partners in this. You win some, we'll win some, yeah. Miranda will win some, and that's all neat. But ultimately, we're all here to do the same thing. It's to protect organizations, protect people, um, and make lives difficult for adversaries, not each other. And you do that through building partnerships. What else? Yeah, I'm just going to throw out there. I'm going to tilt it a little bit at a windmill here. I think this is an opportunity for the vendor community, the equipment manufacturers. Someone really wants to differentiate themselves in an area. This was a, I mean, just imagine yourself being one of those vertical integrators. And by the way, we have the best security far and above everybody else because we've done the following things, whether that's integrating with third parties, tying into managed services to specialize in monitoring our equipment, whatever it might be. But, I wonder if we're going to get to a point where that's the only thing that's going to sort of break the ice jam is somebody's going to step just a little bit farther forward than the rest of the community and it drags the rest of the vendors with them. Again, I may be tilting at windmills here, but something's got to help, help move this along. So I'll tell you, there's a push, there's a push to do the opposite to that in the <laughs> I know there and, you know, th but there's a reason for it. And I, I actually, when I was at GE was a very passionate advocate for the opposite strategy, Mitch. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's the same reason that when you get on an airplane, you don't want your aircraft engine manufacturers competing on safety, right? GE's engines crash less planes than Rolls-Royce, right? You, you want, you, you similarly don't want, um, you know, Philips CT scanners lets in more Russian hackers than GE's, Right, it's, it's not a place that you want to compete because an eroding trust in the patient's belief in the safety of the entire experience erodes everyone's bottom line, right? The, the fewer patients that go to a hospital, the worse off everyone is. And the more that we snipe at each other about that, about security, the more we erode trust in the whole market. 
that said, I agree with you in terms of that needs to happen. But the, the really interesting challenge is it's, it's the lawyers that make this difficult. And so you think about um, things like standards of due care. Say I have five different MRIs on the market. One of them I develop f at a far higher security standard than the others. And eventually we have a situation where we kill a patient in one of the old machines. The very first thing that the, that the government is going to ask that company is, well, you developed this one here and you developed these five, the other four here. Why didn't you raise these to here when you proved that it was possible? And so what the lawyers will tell you is you are better to develop them all down here than to develop one up here because we will eventually have liability for not doing that on the other four. Sounds like financial services in the early 2000s. It does, doesn't it? Doesn't it, doesn't it sound like, you know, the, the era before compliance standards like PCI and things that forced everybody to hit it? And it's the whole death thing. Minus the whole yeah. death thing, right? Like you want it here and you, you want it in the place where there's the death thing far more than you cared about it for credit cards. But, but unfortunately, there's a lot of really interesting perverse incentives once you get inside the, the loop of like FDA, medical device manufacturers and healthcare delivery organizations. It's really, it's a lot trickier than you think. And it, it's, it's actually it's painful on the inside and i think it makes it the bureaucracy of it makes it really challenging to uh to get everybody there certainly maybe it can't be a mitch it can't be a sales point of you know buy us because we're more secure than them but still as an industry making your product safer and it's interesting we haven't seen a lot of that in other industries either you don't see one bank saying come bank with me we don't get breached as much as bank b well no no no, we, no so i think actually europe, we have in europe you gotta put do. it in terms in of europe you banks do you know uh, sell on security and uh, you know you saw that but, I'm, you know, to me, it screams out more for like a cable labs where I forgot we have a company down here where I live in Florida where all the workers' compensation insurance companies are allowed to pull data into this not-for-profit organization. That, and all the workers' comp insurance carriers can have access to that data for actuarial purposes and stuff like that. It's the same thing with cable labs. You, you have a, you know, because it's a not-for-profit, you're exempt from antitrust and you can get the whole industry kind of working together on, you know, cybersecurity standards for, for healthcare. Or and that, that's healthcare. what the C4MI, the Center for Medical Interoperability is. They patterned themselves after cable apps. Like a cable uh, it, it's a thing. daunting task. It is extremely difficult to pull off. No, it is because there's conflicting. Look, there's, there's yes. profit and loss at stake. There's, there's a lot at stake here. Um, guys, but we're, we're about out of time. So I, I need to kind of wrap up. Mike, thanks so much. You've got to come back and join us more. It's Anytime. Always a pleasure to have you on, man. Miranda, always a pleasure. Thank you. Hopefully you'll come back soon. Thanks. Matt, this was your show, dude. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Mitchell, as always, that's going to wrap this episode of CISO Talk. We'll be back in another, I guess, two weeks. Um, I think we're going to go off healthcare to some other uh Vert well, not necessarily verticals, but some other Something interesting easier. topics in cyber. <laughs> and uh, we'll hope to see you then. Until then, though, this is Alan Schimmel for CISO Talk. Have a great day.